In the Old Testament, the children of Israel are God's chosen people. They had been chosen by God to be a light to the world. However, they had become disobedient. They had become ungrateful. They had become rebellious people. And as a result of that, they were visited by God's wrath in the form of invading armies who came and, and destroyed and who called them into captivity. So it was a dark time for Israel. But even though Israel had been punished, they had not been abandoned by God. Through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, God speaks words of comfort. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In the verses that follow, God declares that he is indeed the source of deliverance for them and they don't need to fear that he is the one who charts the course of history and they are to put their trust and their faith in him and in his plan. Uh, eventually, God will come to Zion in power uh, to care for his people and he will reward those uh, who trust him and he will transform the world. But the question becomes, how will a holy God transform this world so that he can dwell among his people and rule in power. The answer comes in Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, God will accomplish that particular task through a special servant. And although the servant isn't identified uh, in Isaiah, uh, it becomes clearer as we go along exactly who this servant is. And there are four passages in Isaiah that are called the servant songs. And they uh, speak of various aspects of the special servant from God. And we're going to be looking at those uh, four servant songs over the next few weeks. But today we look at the first song, and it's, in, it's found in Isaiah chapter 42. Before telling us what the servant is like or what the servant will do, uh, God begins by affirming his commitment to the servant. And here's what he says in Isaiah 42.1. He says, Here is my servant. Whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. God draws attention to his servant. He says, Here he is. Some other translations are a little more dramatic. They say, Behold, my servant. God says he will uphold his servant, which means he will empower him, he'll protect him. It indicates that this servant will not succeed by his own strength but rather by the strength that God gives. He's the chosen one. He did not promote himself to this position. He didn't promote himself, and his status is due to God's plan and God's purpose. It says that uh, there's an intimate relationship with God and the servant. He delights in him, which indicates a godly character that the servant possesses. And he makes an investment in the, ser in the, ser in the servant, God's servant will be empowered by a special outpouring of God's spirit, which is characteristic of a divine appointment. So who is this servant? Well, some may have thought at this time and that maybe it was another prophet, like Elijah or Isaiah even, or maybe, maybe Jonah, because the prophets uh, were, were empowered and, and commissioned to, to speak. Or you might say, well... I wonder if it's another king that's coming because kings were commissioned by God to institute justice. 
Or is this someone else? Could this possibly be the messianic king? Could this be the Messiah that's been promised? Now, keeping in mind the introduction that we just read, where God introduces his servant, listen to Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus has been baptized. And it says, after Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. The special servant of God, God will give him a special outpouring of his spirit. Jesus, at his baptism, the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And it says that God will take delight in his servant. And here at Jesus' baptism, God himself says, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. But let's look further. The prophet Isaiah, or God through the prophet Isaiah, then talks about what the servant will do. And he does this kind of in an interesting way. It's through a series of negatives. He says what the servant will do by telling us what he will not do. So in Isaiah 42, verse 2, he says, He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, he won't use his voice to establish his character and his authority. He won't use his voice to do that. He has the character in him, which gives him the authority. He won't scream or yell about justice. He won't cry out in frustration because things are difficult. But he will rather be guided by patience and endurance and humility. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. A bruised reed, a smoldering wick, are are symbolic of those who are weak and helpless and and broken and, and abused and vulnerable in society. And the servant will not harm or destroy these people that society rejects as either being useless or expendable. And he will not be an aloof king. He will not be a king who who doesn't understand the plight of the people. And he will not deviate from his assigned task. And then in verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The servant won't quit or become discouraged because people are against him. David McKenna says that this means the servant will not die until he has completed his task. And his task is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. The term islands here means the the farthest corners of the earth. That the farthest corners of the earth will hear and will have hope. And even though we aren't sure how God's going to work that out, God and his plan and his providence will. But again, who is the servant? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogue is a man with a withered hand. But also in the synagogue are the Pharisees, Jesus' enemies. And Jesus' enemies want to come up with a plot, a plan, where they can trap Jesus. Get him to do something that will indict him. So what they do is, they come to Jesus and got the man here with a withered hand and say, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
And Jesus says, well, if one of you had a sheep and that sheep fell in the ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull him out? And so Jesus says, of course, you can heal on the Sabbath. And in Matthew 12, 13 and through 16, we read, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and, and he healed all who were ill. And he warned them not to tell others about him. Look at this story. Here we have a bruised reed. We have a man with a withered hand, a man who is vulnerable, a man who is an outcast. He's weak. Now what do the Pharisees want to do? The Pharisees want to take advantage of this man. And they want to use him for their own personal and political gains so they can entrap Jesus. They're not concerned about him. They're going to crush a bruised reed in order for them to, to have some kind of personal gain. And their only concern, being enemies of Jesus, is to, to try to find a way to be an obstacle to his ministry. Well, when confronted, Jesus doesn't cry out. He doesn't shout. He doesn't become defensive. He doesn't become aggressive. He doesn't shout or cry out. And he shows compassion on the man. And he heals him. Jesus does not break the bruised reed. So the Pharisees plotted to kill him. But Jesus' mission and ministry is not over with. So God protects him. And Jesus goes to another place. He will not die until he has completed his mission. And Jesus withdraws from that place. He's not discouraged by the threats. And he goes and he heals others. He takes his great love and his great mercy to others. And then not to draw attention to himself, he says, don't tell anybody about this. You see any similarities to God's servant that's described in Isaiah? Matthew certainly does, because in verse 17 of Matthew 12, he says this, speaking of that incident, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes that passage from Isaiah 42 about the servant. Jesus, the Messiah, is God's servant. But this passage is more than just about, can you guess who this is? This passage has a lot more to do with the mission of this kingly servant. Three times in this passage from Isaiah, three times you find the word justice. Justice. He is going to come and bring and establish justice. So if this is what the king is going to do, then it might be good for us to know what kind of justice it is that this kingly servant is going to bring. When we talk about justice today, we, we almost talk about it in a vengeful way. You know, justice is somebody getting what they deserved. They did this, so here's what they deserve. Sometimes it's about getting even. That's, that's kind of the way that we view justice today. We either speak it or demand it, and we want everybody else to get theirs. But what does it mean from God's perspective when the servant is going to bring justice. What kind of justice is that? Well, the Hebrew word that's translated justice 
here can mean a couple of things. It certainly can mean punishing or pronouncing sentence on someone. But it can also have a positive meaning. And that positive meaning is judging on behalf of someone. Judging on behalf of someone. And it's the second meaning that you find over and over in Old Testament passages related to justice. It's God's commitment to establish righteousness on behalf of his people. And it's his promise to take up others' causes for the good, or the cause of others for the good. And the idea is clearly demonstrated in Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, it's positive and it's proactive and it's intended for us, those of us who are created in God's image, to also reflect this kind of justice when it comes to those in need. That we are champions for the good and we are champions for the right. For example, the prophet Amos. The prophet Amos says, let justice roll down like waters. Amos is not saying, let punishment flow. That's not what he's saying. The Christian organization, International Justice Mission, does not promote themselves as the International Punishment Mission. But rather, they promote themselves as a global organization that protects the poor from violence. Over 70% of the time that justice is used in the Old Testament, it's connected in some way to God's righteousness. Now, they're not identical, but they go together. Righteousness, the moral goodness of God's character. Righteousness, the moral goodness of God's character, but that he also intends to be reflected in the lives of those of us who are made in his image. But justice is the implementation of that righteousness or that goodness on behalf of those in need. Now, in some Christian circles today, we have put so much emphasis on personal morality that we tend to downplay social justice. Now, don't get me wrong. Personal morality is important. That's important. But Jesus criticized the Pharisees for doing exactly the same thing. In fact, he called them hypocrites. What God wants to do in us is he wants to transform our hearts, certainly. But Jesus also wants our communities to be transformed. And he wants it to be done through us. But God gives us the example of what he's talking about in Deuteronomy 10, 18. It says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. We find over and over throughout Scripture that God defends and protects the poor and the downtrodden and the lonely and the orphan and the widow and the helpless and the sick and the outcast. Ellie Toombs writes, What God does in the social realm, His people are to imitate. What God does in the social realm, His people are to imitate. The key here is what God does in the social realm. What God does. You know, we live in the most polarized society, I think, imaginable. We do. 
We live in a terribly polarized society. Now, people on the far right have their view of what justice is. People on the far left have their view of what justice is. And the two could not be farther apart. So it's easy for us to say, well, the solution, the answer is somewhere in the middle. But it isn't. We don't find justice by bringing together two extremes and somehow coalescing in the middle. Justice is defined by Jesus. Not by our definition, not by what we think it should look like, but rather the answer is in Jesus. And that's why, that's why God transforms our hearts so we can become more and more and more like Jesus every day. That's why we say that that's the mission of Clarksburg Baptist Church, that we strive together to become more like Jesus every day. That's what God wants us to do. And as we become more like Jesus, then the more we will seek God's justice in our world instead of our own. Now, the most basic definition of justice I have ever seen uh, is a very simple one, and it defines justice this way. It says, it's the way things are supposed to be in God's creation. Justice is the way things are supposed to be in God's creation. Again, the key word here is God's, not ours. It's God's creation. It's, it's not what we would have it to be, but rather it's how God intends it to be. You know, our church has a rich history of being part of social justice efforts uh, all over the world. For years and years and years, we've been part of mission work in Haiti, particularly with an orphanage. And I know a lot of you have been a part of that mission effort. A lot of you have and continue to sponsor children. So we've been a part of that effort. Some of you have been with me to Cuba, and you've, you've seen how God is working in, in an oppressed country. We have some folks who've been to Uganda, and they've taken care of children who are the, the, the casualties of war and of poverty and of AIDS. So this church has been a part of those efforts, and we're going to continue to be a part of those efforts. On the local scene, we have a food pantry that reaches out into our community twice a week and provides food for the hungry. We have a partnership with the Clarksburg Mission, and in a whole bunch of different ways, some planned and some spontaneous, we've been able to do some incredible work. Celebrate Recovery meets here every Tuesday night. Celebrate Recovery is, is a wonderful organization. But you know what? It's more than an organization. It's a bunch of people who all come together, and the people, all of us, have hurts and habits and hang-ups. And we come together to find hope and healing through Christ. People who would be marginalized otherwise come together and find Jesus. 
and help others find him as well. Now, a lot of times, and this is a good thing, a lot of times we give money to organizations. You know, we, we give money to the church, we give money to the food pantry, we give money to the mission, we give money to the various mission efforts we have, uh, we give money to celebrate recovery. We, we are generous w- with our money. You know, Jesus didn't have any money, but I even think if Jesus had money, Jesus probably would, would have contributed to some of the good causes of the day. But here's what we need to be careful about. We need to be careful that we don't let money become the only thing we do. We don't want to let money become our hands and feet. Jesus was hands-on. The social justice that he was about was hands-on. It wasn't just to throw money at it. But what we need to do, though, is when we are hands-on, we need to follow Jesus' example. We need to do it the way Jesus did, not the way we would do it. Which means we are not to do it by using our voice to establish our authority. That we are not to do it by screaming and yelling in the streets. That we are not to do it by advocating violence nor perpetrating violence. But we are to do it like Jesus did. Through love and compassion and mercy and grace. That's what we need to give to the world. We lived in a polarized, hurting world. And we've come up with some pretty sorry solutions for doing something about it. When right before us is the example of the kingly servant Jesus, that's who we need to follow. Let's pray.